This show is a little off the beaten track, and it may be unexpected and surprising. So, taste it and enjoy. We've had the opportunity to meet and work with a lot of wonderful people. I only hope that we never lose sight of one thing that was all started by a mouse. Oh boy, here we go! Are you kidding me? Out of the gates, this is not happening! By the way, what title would you like? Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. I ain't like a pig! Homer, you are a pig. Oh. I almost forgot. That's why they call me Thumper. You're listening to the Magic on a Dollar podcast. Hey, welcome to the Magic on a Dollar podcast. My name is David Dollar and I'm your host. And guys, thank you. Thank you for being here and I really appreciate you guys listening. I appreciate you guys downloading, subscribing, and all of that good stuff. You've made this show a success. We're on the 77th episode of this podcast. Hey, we're headed to 100 and... We'll see what happens from there, but we're going to talk some Disney stuff today, a little bit of Universal. We'll dive into some Disney history a little bit later on. Top of the show here, I want to give the top of the show shout out to my friend Timothy Dumay, who is a co-owner, co-founder, co-whatever it is that he co's uh, up at StoryEyes.co, S-T-O-R-Y-I-Z-E.co. He's the one that made our Muse bumper, and he's also the guy that did our theme song uh, that you hear every week here. And the very beginning, of course, that was Jeff Goldblum. That was my little throw in there, but uh, he did the theme song overall and i don't thank him enough he he did it tirelessly he did it from just kind of a favor kind of a hey see what you think kind of thing and uh, timothy i appreciate that every time i hear it i think about you and i want people to go to storyize.co not dot com but dot co and that's a place you can go to to get presentations videos things like that tell your stories via digitally via video and stuff contact them for you know for for big presentations churches events whatever personal stuff family whatever contact them they will help you with your digital with your digital presentations your videos your memories they'll help you so let's get this show started we're going to dive in real quick and just toss in some disney news well howdy folks Let's gather around, hear some Disney news from around these parts and around the world. First up, the Skyliner has reopened. Of course, we have uh, we have watched the Skyliner and uh, from Disney and trying to figure out what they're going to do about the Skyliner. You may have heard a couple of weeks ago it, it crashed. It, it I hate to say crashed. It made it sound like everything fell apart. You had a couple of cars that crashed into each other uh, down at one of the stations over at the Disney Riviera Resort, which is opening in uh, about a month and a half. The Skyliner finally has reopened uh, this week, effective today. Now it has some limited openings. They they've been showing some signs here where they're opening. You know, one to close. Or 12 to close or things like that. The only thing they've said in terms of uh, in terms of statement that uh, following a complete review with the manufacturer, we've made adjustments to our processes and training, and we are improving how we communicate with guests during their flight with the Disney Skyliner. We offer our deepest apologies to the guests impacted by the malfunction that resulted in the extended operating delays on October the 5th. And of course, that is when the Skyliner crashed into each other. The four cars crashed, the gondolas. Uh, we're talking about the gondolas, of course. If you, if you are listening to the show for the first time and you're not a big Disney Disney buff, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Disney has opened up on September 29th this gondola system that connected several of the resorts and several of the parks. It's like a it's an enclosed little car, and they have 300 of these things rolling around nearly all day long, uh, holding up to 10 people. And the whole the whole system looks amazing. 
Uh, well, four of them crashed into each other at a station, uh, giving people delays of up to three hours in the cars. Now, they got some people down off the uh, with cherry pickers out of the gondolas. For the most part, the, most of the cars ran into other stations and were able to get out normally, but they've shut it down since then, and they've now just recently reopened it. I'm going to rewrite it. I will write it uh, when I go in uh, um, probably March or so. I'm going to get to go to Disney World next, and I'll, I'll write it then, but I plan on writing it. See, the way I look at the gondola simply is it's it's a form of transportation, and because of that, there will be things that will happen. There will be mishaps. We've had buses that have had fender benders. We've had monorails that have stopped on the tracks, and we will have gondolas that will kind of have a bump and grind here and there, uh, but overall, it's going to be safe. Now, I cannot express to you how big of a disaster this was for Disney. This was a major, major black eye for Disney, uh, so I'm hoping that the Skyliner going up again, rolling again, I'm hoping it all works. I'm hoping everything is good because... Uh, I feel like if it crashes again in the near future, they'll shut the whole thing down, and that's $100 million down the drain. So let's just cross our fingers and hope that it works. I think it looks fantastic. All reports from the gondolas, at least pre-accident, were that they were fantastic. People loved riding them, and they were comfortable, and the views were great and everything, and they were bigger inside than, than you thought they were just, le- just seeing videos and pictures. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed that everything will continue to go well for the Skyway couple of refurbishments coming up. Uh, Test Track will be closing in January for a refurbishment. They're, uh, from January 13th to February 26th, 2020, they will be closing Test Track over in Epcot. Now, they're not going to change anything. As far as we know, there's not going to be any kind of re- re- rehashing of the whole thing or you know gutting it and pulling it out, whatever. I think they're trying to get it fixed and get it up and running and get it going continually because there will be a Spaceship Earth refurbishment coming later on in the next year or so, and more than likely, it's going to be closed for like a year, year and a half uh, as they gut Spaceship Earth and completely rebuild the entire thing on the inside. That's the big ball there in the front. Uh, So if you do want to ride Test Track, if you're going in January 13th through February 26th, just know that you may not uh, get to ride it. Again, that's one, that's an attraction that tends to shut down more than a lot of other other attractions just because of the nature of the attraction itself. You have the cars, you have the high speed, the track on the outside, and the car track on the inside. It it does tend to kind of break down here and there, uh, probably due to just such heavy usage, and I'm guessing the maintenance on it is a pretty big deal. So I'm guessing they're trying to get this thing up and running to make sure it runs fabulously all the time you know spaceship earth is a people eater that means it basically takes in a lot of people at one time so they need to make sure that all the other rides are up and running as much as possible for spaceship earth being down also headed for refurbishment the splash mountain annual refurbishment happens usually happens around every january or so and 2020 will be no different january 6th 2020 through february 27th 2020 is when Splash Mountain will be down. So basically two months or so, you will be without this ride. Now, again, they haven't really said what uh, they will be doing to this attraction, but mostly it's going to be repairing things, fixing things, and, you know, touching up the paint, whatever, making sure everything runs. Um, they're really they're really trying to make sure that everything is up and running appropriately and for long amounts of time uh, for the 50th anniversary, which is coming in 2021. That's going to be a big deal. So they've got to make sure that everything is is top shelf. They got to make sure that everything goes well. Uh, so Disney, if you're listening, make sure you clean Buzz Lightyear Space Ranger spin because that ride's kind of dirty. It really is. You need to clean that up a little bit because, you know, it's it's kind of dirty. Take some Windex to it. If you're planning on going to the Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party on the first date it's available, which is November the 8th of 2019, it is now sold out. So if you were planning on going to a Christmas party that night and you haven't gotten your tickets... You're not going to be able to go unless you are military. A little secret, military, they always have tickets available for the military and their families uh, at the guest relations window there. But overall, the tickets are sold out for the November 8th Very Merry Christmas Party. 
Now, you know, as a travel agent, as a Disney travel planner, certified and uh, got my certificate and everything in the Disney College of Knowledge, I am pretty well versed in doing dining for clients and even for myself when I go on my Disney trips. Well, they have done a little decision that I'm not sure I totally agree with. They are now asking you to not call WDW Dine, which is kind of the no number that everybody calls dining, 407-WW-DINE, D-I-N-E. They're asking you to not call it, to actually go online and do all of your dining reservations. Now, if you have a party of eight or more, uh, you can call the dining number and they will help you from there. But otherwise, they're going to encourage you strongly to go to the website, mydisneyexperience.com or you know waltdisneyworld.com and kind of go from there. Uh, if you have your My Disney Experience account, you'll be able to log in and do your dining reservations. Now, I understand why they're doing this. Part of it, I think, and this is not official, but I believe that they're cutting back on staff and they're kind of saving a little money, trimming the budget here and there. So probably cutting back on how many people are in the dining, uh, the dining reservation center. But they do really want you to, to use the, the app, My Disney Experience. You can go online on your computer or on your phone and get your dining reservations. The problem with this is that a lot of times MDE doesn't work. It just doesn't. Uh, one of the things that I do all the time for all of my clients when I send them on Disney vacation, shameless plug, is that I do type up an itinerary for them. Sometimes I get it to them you know, a couple of days beforehand, sometimes a week beforehand, but I get it to them as soon as I can. But I will get them a full itinerary, and I encourage them to keep it on their email. Keep it in their email as a handy reference for their confirmation numbers and their times and their reservation numbers and such. Because when MDE does crash, MDE being my Disney experience, when your Disney app does crash, and it does crash more than you'd think, uh, you want to be able to have that handy. Now, I'm not saying that it's useless. It's actually a very good app. It really is. It has a lot of information on it, and it really functions really well. You can do your fast passes. You can look stuff up. You can see park wait times, all kinds of different facts and everything, all kinds of things you need to know about the parks are in that app, which is great. I actually will look at the app sometimes. Having not gone to Disney World in a couple of weeks and not going back until March, I can still look at the app and find out things and learn things and so on. But the app doesn't work all the time. So I don't know that I agree with shutting down the dining line because we need that. We really, really do. Then again, for me, I don't know how much is going to be different because when I have trouble online, I just call in anyway. When they say go online, I'm going to say, sorry, it doesn't work. So here we are. So there you go. If you're doing your dining, make sure you get online or just call me and I'll be happy to help you with your Disney trip. Okay, so here's a story from the category of seriously, come on, man. So... Over at Docking Bay 7 Food and Cargo, which is one of the one of the cafes, one of the restaurants there in Galaxy's Edge, the Star Wars area of Hollywood Studios, they're very immersive. Now, as you've heard me talk about, you probably have seen in countless videos and such that the immersion is everywhere when it comes to the labels, when it comes to the names, when it comes to the visuals. They are, they're in a Star Wars galaxy, and along with that comes the food. When I experienced Galaxy's Edge a couple of weeks ago in September, I went to the Docking Bay 7, and I had the fried Andorian tip-yip, which is crispy chicken, uh, roasted vegetable, potato mash, and gravy. You know, there was also the roasted Andorian tip-yip salad. You could have the Felucian Garden Spread, the Yoshib Shrimp Noodle Salad, and the smoked kadu ribs. Now, if you don't know what those are, all you have to do is look on a menu and say, oh, okay, the, well, the roasted Andorian tip-yip salad is marinated chicken, mixed greens, roasted seasoning, vegetables, uh, quinoa, pumpkin seed, and green curry ranch dressing. Awesome. Or the ob shrimp noodle salad, chilled shrimp, uh, marinated noodles and vegetables. I'm reading this off of the menu. Well, the reason I bring all of this up is because Disney has now removed all the Star Wars names from the uh, from from the menu because they don't want people to be confused. Um, apparently, people were going here not knowing what they were ordering when they were ordering a tip yip. Which, again, I don't even know where Tippy-Up comes in when it comes to the Star Wars Galaxy, but I do know that it's under it is it says, you know, chicken. So you know what you're ordering 
Well, they've taken the Star Wars names off in order to not confuse people, which is a little crazy. I understand if they had exotic food. Now, this is what happened over at uh, the Jungle Cruise, the Skipper's Canteen. When it first opened, all the foods were very exotic, very kind of out there for the adventurous sort. And they pulled back on some of those, and they inserted it onto the menu burgers and chicken and basic stuff like that for people who were like, I don't know what this is. I want something I recognize. But with this, the description is there on the menu. So I kind of feel like taking it out, taking out the names, uh, seriously, at least the desserts are still there. They still have the Batu Bond, which is the chocolate cake, white chocolate mousse, and coffee custard, and the Oi Oi Puff, which is the raspberry cream puff and passion fruit mousse. But the Batu Bond is the best. I love the Batu Bond. I thought it was fantastic. So at least we have the desserts to keep us uh, keep us immersed. Why don't we head down the interstate now and go over to Universal for a fun little story. Jason Bourne is coming to Universal Orlando. That's right. Jason Bourne, which has not been in a movie in about three or four or five years, is replacing the Terminator in Universal Studios in the Mixed Media Stunt Show. There will be a Bourne Stuntacular opening spring uh, where the former Terminator show used to be. It will follow the character of Jason Bourne around the globe as sinister characters pursue him. Everything fans have come to expect from an action-packed Bourne film franchise. Thrilling chase scenes, punishing fistfights, death-defying leaps, and danger at every turn will happen right here in front of guests with live performers, high-tech props, and an immense LED screen making it impossible to discern where the live action ends and the cinema begins. That, of course, is from Universal. Uh, The Terminator show ran for 21 years at Universal Studios Florida, and it closed two years ago. The Bourne franchise uh, has not had a movie since 2016. Terminator has a movie coming out later on this month, but... I believe they're doing this because Terminator was a licensed property from Universal. Uh, Disney now owns Terminator, by the way, so I think Universal's okay. Let's get rid of Terminator because they actually do own the Bourne franchise. So Terminator, they were borrowing. They're giving it back to Disney now, now that Disney owns it. Universal owning the Bourne franchise can do what they want to with it. So... You know, it's really about the in-theater experience more than the franchise itself. So it actually may be fantastic. I don't know. I like the Bourne franchise. Some of the movies, I think there's like four movies. I think they're pretty good. But it's a stunt show. So we'll see what happens with the stunt show. I'm looking forward to it. I will go see it next time I'm down there. So there's your news. You're all caught up on what's happening at Disney World and even at Universal. And now here's a little bit of Disney uh, Disney fun for you. Uh, everybody has a Disney bucket list, I think. Every Disney fan probably has things they want to do. And one of the things on my Disney bucket list is to do all six parks in one day, coast to coast. Talking about Animal Kingdom, Hollywood, Epcot, Magic Kingdom, uh, on the East Coast and on the West Coast, do California Adventure and Disneyland. Uh, doing Magic Kingdom over there, doing all six in one day. It would take a lot to do. It really would because it's a flight that has to happen. You have to transfer from airport to parks and back and so on and so forth. So, you know, there's a lot going on there. I'm going to do it one of these days. Well, this guy here, his name is Rene Herrera. He's an insurance salesman over in El Paso, Texas. And he decided that he was going to do more than just the six parks. He was going to do nine parks. And that includes also uh, Universal Studios and Islands of Adventure in Orlando and Universal Studios Hollywood. So nine parks in one day. This guy's my hero. He really, really is. took him 22 hours to do this marathon journey. Uh, Now, we'll talk a little bit about marathons and running and how to do the parks and stuff in just a minute. But I kind of want to run through this guy's story. He started on October 4th at 4.30 in the morning. By 6 a.m., he was in to Hollywood Studios for the extra, extra magic hours rope drop. Went all the way to Galaxy's Edge to be the first rider on Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run. He said he got the cockpit all to himself. He threw down some blue milk in Batu East, uh, which is what they call uh, over at uh, Hollywood Studios, Batu East. He made his way by lift to Animal Kingdom by 6.52. 
So he got to cover two parks before the sun comes up, is what he said. He rode Flight of Passage in Pandora, which is pretty impressive, because I don't know if he had a fast pass for that or not, but uh, getting him there that early in the morning is pretty doggone fast. Actually, the park opens at 7, so I imagine he was probably on there pretty quickly, so good job for him. Got to the Magic Kingdom by 8 o'clock. He got on Space Mountain immediately. He was out uh, walking out of the park by 20, 25 minutes later. Took a minivan ride over to Epcot by 8.48 in the morning. Uh, jumped on Spaceship Earth, which is right there in the front of the park right there that big ball uh so jumped on that he was on his way to universal orlando by uber at 9 20 uh 45 minutes later he was walking into islands of adventure on his way to hagrid's magical creatures motorbike adventure in the wizarding world of harry potter well the ride was out of service and so he ended up doing the forbidden journey jumped off of that took the hogwarts express over to universal studios then he went into gringotts bank uh that which is really i mean you can ride any ride in the, i guess the universal studios that you want in order for him to, to qualify but he wanted to do the Harry Potter stuff, so he rode Gringotts Bank. He walked out at 11.20 in the morning. Uh, before leaving Universal Orlando, he grabbed a glass of butterbeer to wash down a stale churro, is what he said, before jumping into a lift to the airport for a six-hour flight to California. He arrived at the airport 45 minutes early, got on a flight at 1.40. He said he had one meal per day, one true meal, Big Mac and some fries and a Coke at the McDonald's. It was uh, 6.30 or 7.30 p.m. Pacific time when he got to Universal Studios Hollywood. So flew over there. So basically, from what I'm gathering, it's a six-minute ride from the airport, from Hollywood Burbank Airport to California's theme park, Universal, uh, but it took him an hour because of traffic. So he was able to get on there. He did uh, he, the Walking Dead walk through Haunted House Attraction, which is going on during the Halloween Horror Nights. So then he ran into the biggest hurdle of the trip, which was bumper-to-bumper California freeway traffic. So by this time, he's going to the final resort of the final two resorts of the night, California Adventure and Disneyland. So he jumped on the Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout attraction over at California Adventure about 30 minutes before the whole park closed. And then he actually raced over to Disneyland, but then he thought that the park closed later than it did. Park actually closed at 11. He thought it closed at midnight, so he was not able to do Star Tours and Hyperspace Mountain like he wanted to. So he went straight to Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run over there in Disneyland, rode it nine parks in one day, which is pretty amazing. All in all, he walked 19 miles and experienced 11 attractions during the 22-hour trip, uh, doing nine theme parks on two coasts. The edge-to-edge trip would have not been possible except for the magic hours at Hollywood Studios early in the morning, single rider lines, fast passes helped. He did TSA pre-check. He traveled with only a backpack, so he didn't have to check any luggage. He said he spent about 400 bucks on the journey, mostly on hotels, ground transportation, and souvenirs, used airline points for flights, had annual passes for both coasts which really, really helps, and that's actually kind of expensive. So kudos to this guy. Hoorah for this guy. That's pretty fantastic. He says he thinks he might be the first person to ever do that. I'm not going to question that because who knows? That's a, that's a that's a pretty big deal. But kudos to Rene Herrera. Good job, my friend. Clap for you. Clap for you, man. So we're going to close this episode with a little bit of Disney history, and it's a, it's kind of an important date in the, the, the history of the company itself, something that I think a lot of people don't know about or they kind of just kind of mull over they kind of skip over because they just they don't know it so we're going to take you all the way back to october of 1919 walt disney has come to kansas city he's working at a place called the pesman rubin commercial art studio now if you remember phantom menace and i'll make the connection in a second but if you remember phantom menace star wars phantom menace episode one how big of a deal it was for obi-wan and anakin to meet each other they're on that ship uh, there's qui-gon jen and he's basically saying anakin this is obi-wan obi-wan anakin they shake hands a relationship is born thus is the setting at pesman rubin commercial art studio in kansas city when walt disney met ub iWorks. now ub ub is how it's spelled 
and how it's pronounced, of iWorks, is one of those figures in Walt Disney history that is like a pillar of the company itself. Like without Ub, a lot of things in Disney does not happen. It's it's a pretty big deal. Up is a massive character, a legend in Disney, and I cannot express to you how big of a deal it is. So Ub and Walt Disney meeting each other, I liken it to Anakin and Obi-Wan meeting each other because amazing things would happen later on. Of course, in Star Wars, things happened that weren't quite as amazing. But, you know, for Ub and for Walt, it was great. Ub actually stuck with him during the war. Whenever people were walking out and, uh, you know, striking um, and all his animators were leaving, Ub was, was kind of there. So it's a pretty big deal. So, in January of 1920, the Pessim and Rubin revenue declined after Christmas. They had a great Christmas, but the revenue went down afterwards. They laid off Walt and Ub. They both lost their jobs. So, they said, hey, you know what? We'll start our own company. They started the iWorks Disney Commercial Artists Studio, doing illustrations for advertising, theater programs, catalogs, basic stuff like that for commercials and things. Uh, and it just it didn't really work. They tried to get it going. It didn't work, so they ended up leaving the company itself. They both joined a company called the Kansas City Film Ad Company, doing a lot of the same stuff. Now, this company actually did commercials using cutout animation techniques. Now, if you're wondering what cutout animation is, it's a form of stop motion animation using flat characters, using props, using backgrounds of materials like paper, fabric, cards, photographs, things like that. You would cut the props out and use them as puppets for stop motion. So basically, you put the puppets down, take a picture, slightly move it, take a picture, slightly move it, take a picture until you have a working commercial. So Walt kind of got interested in animation from here. He thought this was kind of cool, but he liked the actual drawn cartoons, the, the Mutt and Jeff cartoons of the, of the early day. So he borrowed a camera, and he borrowed an animation book, and he went home, and he experimented, and he came to the conclusion that cell animation was actually better than cutout animation. Now, cell, cell animation is traditional animation. So you actually draw each frame by hand. There's no cutout or anything. You draw each one. You film the cells together, and it was really the, the dominant form of animation until computer animation came along in the, uh, the last part of uh, the 20th century and early early part of this century. So he tried to get uh, the, the Kansas City Film Ad Company to do cell animation, and they refused. So he said, you know what? I'm going to open up a new business. So he left Ub. He left the company. He went to a, a company that he helped co-found called the Film Ad Company with his friend Fred Harmon. So their main client was actually a local uh, theater called the Newman Theater. And with Fred and with the Film Ad Company, they actually produced a series of short cartoons called the Newman Laughograms. Now, Disney was a big fan of Aesop's fables, and so he actually did the first six Laughograms as modernized fairy tales. May 1921, Laughograms actually led to the establishment of the Laughogram Studio, which he hired more animators. He hired Fred's brother Hugh. He hired Rudolph Ising, and he hired Ub Iwerks. So they came working back together, but the Laughogram cartoons did not give enough income to keep the company going. So the company kind of was 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 headed for bankruptcy. So Disney said, you know what? I'm going to do something new. I'm going to try to make more money here with Laughograms. And so we're going to create something brand new. And he created this production of this Alice in Wonderland-based cartoon series called the Alice's Wonderlands. They will later be known as the Alice Comedies. So with this, he actually combined live action with animation, which at the time was was pretty rare. You didn't see a whole lot of that back then, so I, it was a pretty impressive thing for him to do. He cast this young lady named Virginia Davis as Alice in these, and he actually started creating these 12-and-a-half-minute films, but unfortunately they were coming out, and they were too late, too late for Laughgram Studios. The company went into bankruptcy in 1923, so Walt said, you know what? I'm packing my bags and I'm moving to Hollywood. And that's exactly what he did in July of 1923. Now, New York at the time was the center of the cartoon industry. That's where all the cartoonists were, where all the major illustrators were. If you wanted to do animation for 
for for bigger things like short films and such, you go to New York. Walt, however, was attracted to Los Angeles not only because he wanted to be a live-action film director, but also because his brother Roy was there as well. And Roy had tuberculosis, and so Walt thought, you know what, I can help take care of Roy, I can do a live-action film directing career, that's why I'm going to Hollywood. Now, in order to do that, he needed to sell the Alice's Wonderland cartoons. He had several in his pocket, several in his hand, trying to sell them, but nobody wanted to buy them. Until Margaret J. Winkler called. She's a New York film distributor, and she actually had the rights to the Out of the Inkwell and Felix the Cat cartoons. You may remember Felix the Cat, or at least know about the brand. Well, she had just recently lost the rights to it, and she had to have some sort of series to produce, some sort of series to put out there to to make some money. So in October of 1923, October the 16th, to be exact, of 1923, they signed the contract for the Alice comedies. Disney and his brother Roy formed the Disney Brothers Studio, which of course later became the Walt Disney Company to produce the films. This is where it all began. Uh, This is where it all started. This is where the company was really founded. Until then, Walt was an illustrator. He was an animator. He was a creator. He was somebody who was going from job to job. He wanted to be a film film director, you know, trying to trying to get things coordinated for his career. Roy was somebody, you know, recovering from tuberculosis, and also he was kind of the the accountant guy. He was the the, the numbers guy. He was the one that put put things put pen to paper and let's figure out how we're going to do this kind of thing. They got together and they formed the Disney Brothers Studio. And as Paul Harvey would say, now you know the rest of the story. Uh, well, of course, there's so much to this story that you know from there on out. Of course, what happens with Charles Muntz losing uh, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit? Ub Iwerks comes back, and of course, he meets Lillian Bounds, who ends up becoming Lillian Disney. Mickey Mouse is created, uh, and so on and so on and so forth. So there's a lot more to that story, but I thought that was really kind of fun to bring up the founding of the Walt Disney Company Studio as a company uh, on October the 16th, 1923. So that is our show, folks. Magic on the Dollar podcast. Guys, I appreciate you listening. I do. I really appreciate you listening, downloading, subscribing, telling a friend, sharing the show, telling other people about the show, about the podcast. If you like the show, go to Apple Podcasts and go to Spotify and Google Play, iHeartRadio, wherever you can leave reviews. Do that very thing. That's what I would love for you guys to do. That would help me out a lot. And actually, it does help podcasts. It really does help podcasts to leave reviews because that's how the podcast services like Apple iTunes or Apple Podcasts knows that people are listening to your podcast because people are responding to it. Also, send me an email, gmail.com. I would be happy to help you with your Disney travel planning experience and uh, you know, go out, going out to uh, Walt Disney World, going out to Disneyland. If you want to do four parks in one day, I can help you. If you want to do nine parks in one day, you know what? We can figure that out. Again, my name is David, and I am glad you're here. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week. And don't forget to thank a Phoenician. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Magic on a Dollar. Facebook at Disney on a Dollar. And of course, MagicOnADollar.com. See you real soon.